Attorneys with the Animal Legal Defense Fund are representing justice. Now, the Animal Legal Defense Fund helped come up with the California bill. The Animal Legal Defense Fund. The Animal Legal Defense Fund. Animal Legal Defense Fund ranks the best and worst states for animal protection laws. The way our laws are currently written, it's not viewing this crime as seriously as it should be. The Animal Legal Defense Fund is suing Petland. Lawyer for the Animal Legal Defense Fund says they are in negotiation. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Animal Amicus. Once again, I'm here with my co-host David Rosengard and I'm Nicole Pallotta. And today we're going to talk about three Oregon cases that we often refer to as the Oregon Trilogy. These cases went all the way to the Oregon Supreme Court and they each took a critical approach to animals' legal status. So because of this and some other interesting specifics we're going to get into, we think of these cases as being pretty important. Exactly. Uh, and as, as you said, Nicole, we're dealing with three different Supreme Court cases here. And so that's a lot going on. And we'll talk about what those cases are and the facts of them individually. But to try to get this all fit together better as we're talking about it, we thought we'd come up with a, a hypothetical, or as we say in the world of the law, a hypo. Uh, and that we would use this hypo to bring out different elements of all three cases. So as we're following along, as we're thinking about this, Rather than jumping back and forth between them, we can refer back to this one consistently in addition to talking about the three actual cases. And so you may be wondering to yourself, well, that's all fine and dandy, David and Nicole, but what is this uh, hypo? What is this hypothetical? What animal are we talking about? We, loyal listeners, are talking about Daisy the cow. And Daisy is a cow living in Oregon. Uh, Daisy is hanging out in a pasture. Uh, but the neighbors are concerned because they've noticed that over time, Daisy is getting skinnier and skinnier. She seems emaciated. She seems to be having some trouble. She doesn't seem to be, as far as the neighbors think, getting the help, the food, the attention she needs. And so they are going to contact uh, local law enforcement to check in on Daisy and to see what happens next. Excellent. We're going to get into more specifics about that. But in setting this up, uh, so the jurisprudence revealed in this trio of cases basically rejects the common binary approach that situates animals as analogous either to any other property or as analogous to humans. And instead, the courts here focus on animalness or the nature of what it means to be a non-human animal. And just usage note for simplicity and to reflect common and legal usage, we'll be using the shorthand animals to refer to animals other than humans. So the focus on animalness here is important because the courts in these cases concluded that just because the law still considers animals to be property, that doesn't mean the law must or should treat them like non-sentient objects which are by far the majority of other entities in modern society that are found in that legal category of property. So it's a weird tension because we have animals and inanimate objects essentially in the same category, which is an uneasy fit for probably obvious reasons. So if we think of animals' legal status as a continuum, which we believe it is, with being treated like humans on one end and being treated like inanimate objects on the other, Treating them similar to objects has been the more common approach, and that's obviously a huge problem when you're dealing with living, feeling beings. So 
Before we dive into these cases, which David's going to walk us through, we wanted to take a little pause here just to talk about sentience and define it a little. So the simple definition of sentience and how it's usually used in animal law means the ability to feel and to experience positive and negative sensations, including pain and pleasure. Now, in terms of which animals are sentient, there's consensus in the scientific community that basically all vertebrate species are sentient. And more research is coming out all the time about invertebrates. And I think it's accurate to say that most experts who work in this area encourage use of the precautionary principle, since it's likely that many invertebrate species have been assumed uh, to be non-sentient simply because they look so different from us. But we don't really have evidence for that. And it's turning out we were wrong in a lot of cases, historically, in terms of our assessment of non-human animals and their capabilities, which is maybe understandable from a structural perspective. You know, there's a lot of motivation to deny animal sentience and to deny animals all kinds of capabilities because we live in an anthropocentric society where commodification and exploitive use of animals, especially for food, undergirds huge portions of not only our economy, but our culture as well. So there's a lot of motivation on a societal level to deny that animals can feel. But we've gotten to the point where that conclusion is increasingly untenable from a scientific perspective, but in many ways our legal system hasn't quite caught up. So circling back to sentience simply defined, it's the ability to experience positive and negative states. We can see that pretty clearly if we think about our, our cow friend, Daisy. In this scenario, the reason the neighbors have called law enforcement is because they're worried about how Daisy is feeling, how Daisy is doing. Uh, if, if instead of Daisy, there was a tree in the neighboring yard and that tree looked like the tree might be dying, no one would be calling law enforcement. No one would call the Humane Society for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, we generally don't think that trees are experiencing pain or pleasure or the hunger pangs of starvation. Uh, and also, it's not against the law to let a tree die. That's, that's not a violation of the law, whereas it is illegal in every state in the country to neglect an animal to death, an animal that you are responsible for. And, and I think this gets at one of the issues that Nicole's talking about, which is the law isn't consistent about how it deals with animal sentience. On the one hand, the law clearly recognizes that animals are sentient. It's why we have cruelty law. If we didn't believe animals were sentient, we wouldn't have laws that said things like, you can't cause an animal undue suffering because, well, if you're not sentient, you can't suffer. But at the same time, we have other laws that treat animals like inanimate objects, like you know, things instead of creatures. And so untangling this is part of the mission of animal law. And it's part, of course, what we're up to on this podcast. Uh, the other thing that I, I think is worth highlighting is that you know, the, the, the space between what we intuitively know about animals and the way that the law treats them is changing over time as we learn more. So Nicole was talking about how at this point it's accepted that vertebrates are sentient and it's becoming increasingly clear that other animals are sentient as well, that if you hurt them, they experience pain, for example. Uh, but that hasn't always been the case. We can go back uh, you know, to an earlier era when people who, I would argue, should have known better would have happily told you that Daisy the cow was incapable of feeling anything. 
Descartes, for example, famous philosopher Descartes, essentially would argue that Daisy the cow is just a big meat robot. And yes, it looks like she experiences pain. Yes, she sounds like she's unhappy. Yes, it looks like she really wants some food. But that's just the way the mechanics of her body work. And we know now that that's not the case. We know that, of course, animals are actually experiencing things, that it's more than just a mechanism involved in how different animals react. Uh, and so that really brings us to what the law is all about uh, when it comes to cruelty law and how it interacts with animals. And it specifically brings us to the cases we're talking about today, because all of these cases revolve around animal sentience and what it means in the practice of law. Yeah, and I just want to note that sometimes there's not always an understanding of what sentience means. Like, I know we tend to say living, feeling beings instead of sentient beings, just just to be clear, because sometimes, you know, we just talked about sort of the simple and most widely used definition of sentience, but sometimes people equate it with um, sort of higher cognitive abilities or um, things like self-consciousness or self-awareness or intelligence. And um, these these are all, um, this is, he, here we're talking about just the ability to feel. And that that's by far, I would say, the more common usage, definitely within the animal movement, but also I think in the scientific literature and the legal system. So I just wanted to flag that, that we're not talking about like cognitive ability here. And I actually, I happened to be looking at the Wikipedia page for sentience the other day and came across um, this interesting tidbit that I didn't know. It said the word was first coined by philosophers in the 1630s for the concept of an ability to feel derived from Latin sentientum to distinguish it from the ability to think. So I thought that was interesting that, you know, the whole back in the 1600s, the, the whole uh, sort of origin of this word is to focus on the feeling aspect and, and not, you know, to, to distinguish it from being able to think. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I thought it was too. That's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize <laughs> that. And I, again, I think it really goes to what this part of animal law is about, the crimes part of animal law, because we never ask, is this animal smart enough? To be protected by cruelty law? No one's giving an IQ test to a dog to find out if it was okay that someone abused that dog. That never happens. The only question we ask is, is this creature an animal under the law? And was that am animal capable of suffering, capable of dying? Was that animal treated in a way that was criminal? And that's always somehow connected to the animal being neglected, abused, or killed, most often in a way that it has an impact on their experience. Yeah, exactly. And so sentience really captures what it means to be a living, feeling being as opposed to an inanimate thing or an object. And this distinction between animals and things is really at the core of animal law, I think we could say. And, you know, just returning to property for a moment, lots of people argue that this issue, um, you know, of the difference between animals and things is more fundamentally problematic than animals being classified as property. So animal law folks don't necessarily agree on how urgent or sort of necessary it is to remove animals from the category 
of property before meaningful legal reform can be achieved. So there are some who say this is like absolutely a prerequisite. It must happen before animals' interests are ever going to be given serious moral weight. You know, when you have a calculus where the interests of property owners are going up against the interests of their own property, the property is never going to kind of get a fair shake, right? But lots of others argue that there's plenty of room for meaningful reform now, even while animals are still classified as property, and that there's plenty we can do within the current paradigm, even as we work to change it. Uh, so the idea being that these goals aren't mutually exclusive or at odds with each other. And those goals are to improve the conditions for animals now while building toward a legal status or statuses that explicitly recognize animals are more than mere property. So just to acknowledge that there is, you know, kind of that debate that happens sometimes, and we're not going to get into that today, but suffice it to say, the distinction between animals and objects, whatever their property status, is not as clear in the law as it should be. And one way to clarify that is to codify recognition of animal sentience in the law. And we're, we're going to talk about some developments in this area later in the podcast. And as David already mentioned too, you know, like there's a difference between explicit re recognition and implicit recognition because animal cruelty laws, you know, by, by virtue of their nature, implicitly recognize that animals are sentient. We don't have cruelty laws protecting inanimate objects, for example. But um, we're going to, we'll talk a little bit more about sort of general sentience uh, developments later. But first, we want to talk about sentience in practice and why we think these Oregon cases are so important. Um, but one final thing before, um, before I turn it over to David to talk about those cases, I just want to point out that for us and probably most of our listeners, I would guess, the fact that animals are not objects and should not be treated like things is uh, probably very obvious. Um, yet in the legal system, this distinction, unfortunately, can be anything but obvious. And the way courts and legislatures are grappling with the fact that animals are defined as property while also being sentient has huge impacts on their lives and well-being. And in my view, uh, this ambigu ambiguity over animals' legal status in a way defines the current state of animal law sort of as a field. And confusion around this issue often leads to unjust outcomes for animals sometimes uh, bizarre ones. So just suffice it to say, this distinction that seems so obvious is, is not always that obvious. And there are very real results from that. Um, so that was a long introduction to the fact that these Oregon cases we're going to talk about today engage directly with that issue. Exactly. These cases are all about fundamentally the animalness of animals. The fact that they are living creatures who can feel, who can experience. That's at the core of being an animal. Uh, without that, you are a thing. Without that, you are an object. Uh, without that, you aren't an animal. And so it, it really makes sense that the law is engaging with this at a fundamental level. And as you were saying, Nicole, part of why it's important that the law do that is the law otherwise can easily get hung up on other labels that animals bear. The law can get hung up on the property label. The law can get hung up on what other status an animal may have. And this is a way to have a conversation that runs parallel to that. As you were saying, could still have the property conversation. But this is a way to independently clarify some things and address an issue the law has, which is, as an institution, as a field, 
we are scared of change. It makes us very nervous. Um, and not just because we're, we're fundamentally afraid of the unknown out there, but because as lawyers, as judges, as practitioners, we feel a responsibility to create a deliberate system and a system that works well. And so anytime you start changing things, people worry there are going to be vast ranging unintended consequences. What is going to occur? The phrases people like to throw around are slippery slope or floodgates. One moment animals will stop being property or stop being things. The next moment uh, horses will be voting and my three dogs will all want to drive the car. He said hyperbolically. Fortunately, and this I think is part of what's great about these cases, these cases are an example of courts very deliberately saying, we can actually address the fact that animals aren't things, that they're not objects, and what that means without having to worry about the floodgates opening and a slippery slope of unknown events occurring because the thingness or animalness of creatures is separate from those other issues. It may connect to them, it may implicate them, but we can deal with it on its own in individual cases here and now. So let's talk about these three cases. And for those of you following along at home, on your car, wherever you might be, uh, out on your walk with your companion animals, uh, the three cases are State versus Nix, State versus Newcomb, and State versus Fessenden. And these three cases all involve different legal questions, but again, they all connect to that issue of animal sentience. So I'm going to lay out the facts of those cases for you, and then we'll put it all back together with Daisy the Cow, because Daisy the Cow is actually going to experience an extraordinary run of bad luck, and she is going to be dealing with all the things that these cases bring up. So let's start with State versus Nix. Uh, and State versus Nix involves a group of goats and horses that were living uh, on a property in Oregon. And they were being neglected. They weren't getting enough food. Uh, when officers showed up to investigate, they found that the, the goats and horses had been reduced to trying to eat the wooden fencing that was surrounding the pens they were kept in. They were that hungry that they had resorted to eating stuff that just isn't food. And this, understandably, led to criminal negligence charges. And the defendant was found guilty at trial for neglecting multiple animals. Found responsible, found guilty for 20 counts of animal neglect. And at this point, the defense attorney motioned to merge those charges. And you may be thinking to yourself, what does that mean? Because that's not a phrase that we hear a lot of, even in the criminal world. Uh, and it's particularly not one that comes up a lot in popular consciousness. What merger means in a criminal context is just that if you're doing the same crime, you can't have multiple charges for it. So let me give you an example. If someone walks in to a supermarket and they pick up a six pack of beer and they walk out without paying for it, that's a pretty clear case of theft. It's theft three, it's minor theft, but it's still theft. A prosecutor could choose to charge that person with six counts of theft, one for each can of beer. But 
at sentencing, if that person is convicted of all six beer thefts, that's just going to consolidate down to one count of theft because it all happens at the same time, it's the same crime, and it's the same victim. So same criminal activity, same time, same victim, one crime. In contrast, if our six-pack bandit walks across the street to a convenience store and walks out with a candy bar without paying for it, then they'd have two crimes. They'd have one count of theft for the six-pack and another count of theft for the candy bar because there'd be two separate victims. There would be the grocery store and the convenience store. So the easiest way to think about this is it's a way to ensure that if you have different crimes or different victims, that the perpetrator is held accountable to that. Uh, the rub here is the defense attorney says, well, yeah, there are 20 crimes, but those animals aren't victims. Those animals were owned by the defendant. So those 20 crimes should all consolidate down to one. Uh, a, a flip way to put this might be it's a neglect one, get the rest free sort of scenario. And the court ended up having to figure out whether or not those animals counted as crime victims for the purposes of sentencing. And to do that, the court looks at why animal cruelty law exists and whether it's possible for animals to be victims and really digs into questions of sentience, really digs, in, digs into the fact that the reason animal cruelty law exists ultimately is to protect animals and prevent them from suffering. And David, can I ask you a question? I don't no, you may not know the answer to that, to this, but I was wondering, do you know, is it common to merge animal cruelty charges in general, or do we have data about that? I just, I hadn't really heard about that being like um, so much of an issue until um, like this is such a kind of a big deal in this case. And I just wondered, like, does that happen a lot? So it's hard to get data on this for a few reasons. Uh, probably the biggest one is there is no national data on animal cruelty at all. We have no tracking that tells us how many people are arrested for animal cruelty, how many of those people are convicted, and then what happens after that, what the sentences are, whether the charges are consolidated, much less whether there's recidivism. Um, I and some colleagues were, were working to try to get some answers to that. Uh, the FBI is doing some voluntary reporting but none of that really gives us enough data yet to answer the question. So I can't give you a solid number. I can't say it happens in this percentage of cases, but we do know it happens uh, because after, yeah, after this case was resolved, we've seen the question pop up in other places. And I can talk about that as well, since it's an argument that makes sense. You know, if, if, as an, if you were a defense attorney, your job is to zealously advocate for your client, to make the strongest argument for them that you can. If your client has already been convicted of multiple counts of animal cruelty, well, the next best argument from the defense perspective is going to be, okay, sure, my client did it, but it should only count as one crime. I was just wondering if the, I wonder if that's something that the FBI will be tracking. I know they only recently, well, like 2016, started tracking animal cruelty crimes as its own category. And I don't know exactly what they're tracking, but I was wondering if that might be one of the things that they are tracking. But it sounds like that data is going to be limited anyway. But I, I remember it being exciting at the time because it was like, 
oh, at least there will be some data moving forward and someone is sort of tracking some cruelty crimes. Yeah, I, I don't know that the FBI is going to get that deep into it. The numbers that they're tracking right now are how many cases of animal cruelty are reported and how many of those reports result in it's either arrests or charges. I would have to go look up the data to see which one. Uh, but it doesn't tell us anything after that. So it doesn't tell us how many people are being convicted, what they're being, what the sentence is, whether their charges are merging, or whether they are coming back to commit more animal cruelty. And in fairness to the FBI, that's not really their job. Their job is to figure out, they're a law enforcement agency, not a prosecution agency. So their job is to figure out what reports are coming in and are people, are the people who are being reported, are the cases being investigated and followed up on to a point where there can be an arrest, where there can be charges, it would be up to prosecutors to collect data on what happens after that. Does the case result in a guilty verdict? Does the case plea out? And the question really at the core here, at the core of State versus Nix, do those charges consolidate? So again, the court in Nix at the Supreme Court level ends up doing some really clever analysis and determining that the only way to really explain modern cruelty crimes is in terms of protecting animals. Those crimes are not about protecting property, because if they were, it would be impossible to abuse your own animal, because you would be destroying your own property. And so it has to be more than just property protection. Also, it has to be more than just trying to protect a sort of vague moral sensibility on the part of the community, because the way criminal laws are set up, the way cruelty laws are set up in the modern era, is not just about whether animals are being abused in public. For example, there used to be laws against beating horses in the streets or in the public square. We don't see laws like that anymore. The cruelty laws as they exist today make it illegal to beat animals or treat animals cruelly or subject them to unnecessary pain or suffering, things like that. Uh, and so again, in the court's analysis, it's really focused on the experience of the animal and protecting those animals from unlawful cruelty. Now, that acknowledges that there are sorts of behavior that you and I might call cruel that are still lawful, that are not criminal. There are carve-outs in cruelty law that allow animals to be euthanized, that allow animals to be slaughtered for food or fiber. There are all kinds of exceptions in cruelty law, but that's in many ways a judgment that we as a society, as a culture, have made explicitly. It's a agreement we've made to put up with a certain amount of cruelty in exchange for whatever we're getting out of that. And that's different than saying that animals don't experience pain and suffering. We can talk about whether it's the moral choice, a good choice to make, but what we're effectively saying is animals do suffer pain. Animals do experience life. Animals who are living and happy experience joy. And taking that away from them in an unlawful way is a violation of criminal cruelty code. And therefore, in the court's eyes, if the point of cruelty code is to protect animals, then animals are the victims of animal cruelty. And therefore, you don't merge their crimes. 
So in this case, the way Nix resolves is there are 20 crimes against multiple horses and goats. Those all stand separately, and the defendant is responsible and needs to be held accountable to each of those victims. I have a tangential question. Um, you know how you mentioned um, the, the old laws about, oh, it's only a crime if it happens in the public square? And I was just thinking, maybe I'm making this up, but aren't there some like enhanced penalties sometimes if animal cruelty happens in front of children? I don't know. I feel like maybe something in animal fighting or maybe domestic violence. And is that is that just more maybe for like sentencing than it actually being a cruelty crime? I, I was just thinking that when you were talking about how it's only a crime if it happens in front of someone. But... Yeah, there, there are enhancements in some states. This isn't going to be true for every state. But there are some states where you where there'll be an enhancement on the crime. If it's done in front of a child, if it's done as part of a domestic violence uh, event, if it's done as part of a sexual assault, for example. Uh, and that, to give an analogy that is probably sounds more familiar to all of us from the hours of our lives we spent watching Law & Order, it's the difference between regular murder and aggravated murder. Either way, the crime is murder, but aggravated murder implies that something particularly egregious happens that bumps it up to be a more significant crime with a more significant sentence. So with animal cruelty, for example, beating an animal to death is going to be cruelty. Um, we'll just take that as our example. That will be cruelty. In some states, if you do it in front of a child, it will be aggravated cruelty. Some states, if you do it because you're trying to control your spouse or a parent or a minor child, then it would be cruelty with a domestic violence enhancement. It's a way of saying that there's a basic core crime here that still exists, but there's something about it that makes it particularly bad. And so we as a society have decided that there needs to be a focused kind of accountability for that. What that focused accountability looks like is going to depend on the state you're in, their sentencing. Some states have requirements to get mental health assessments for certain animal crimes, but not others. Some will have more severe sentences for some crimes and not others. But it's all about saying there's a basic crime, but something happened to make this worse than normal. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for explaining that. <laughs> that was a bit of a tangent. Oh, of but... course. Of course. <laughs> um, and, and while I'm explaining things, a further note <laughs> on Nix. Uh, this is going to be really exciting for uh, those of you law students following along at home who are super into your citations, as you should be. Citations are the best. Uh, if you are citing Nix, things are going to get very strange for you very quickly. If you are putting together a footnote to explain where your audience can go to find this case and read about it, because Nix has a bizarre postscript to it, which is after the Supreme Court rendered their decision, after they announced the holding that animals were crime victims for the purposes of sentencing, I remember in the office, we were all very excited. We were celebrating. After that, something weird happened. And what happened was the Oregon State Department of Justice realized that they never had standing to appeal the case because the neglect in this case was misdemeanor cruelty instead of felony cruelty. Technically, the Department of Justice wasn't able to bring the case up on appeal. And so the Supreme Court was never supposed to hear it in the first place. And no one had realized that 
until they had already decided the case. So what the Department of Justice did, to their credit, is they got a hold of the Supreme Court. And they said, Your Honors, we feel duty bound to remind you, to bring to your attention that uh, this is a case you never should have heard. The judges understandably said, well, if we were never supposed to hear the case, we're going to vacate the entire thing. And for those of us in the office, this was a sad day. But think back to what I said a few moments ago about how if you are a zealous criminal defense attorney, you have a duty to make the best argument for your client that you can. And so it was inevitable that without that Supreme Court case on the books, a defense attorney would make that argument again. Because until there's a, a Supreme Court case saying this is what the rule is, it's unsettled. And so lo and behold, just a short time later, in State versus Hess, Oregon versus Hess, a case involving neglected cats, the defense made exactly the same argument. The defense said, we've got multiple cats. My client has been convicted of neglecting them. We believe all of those neglect charges should merge into one crime because the cats are not victims. And the Oregon Appellate Court said, we remember the Oregon Supreme Court hearing a case like this. And while we know that case has been vacated, and so it's not binding precedent, we are going to apply the logic of that case to this current situation. And we are going to say that animals are crime victims for the purposes of sentencing using the same logic that the Supreme Court laid out in their now non-binding decision. And then the Supreme Court said, yeah, that's right. We're not going to pick up that case. We're going to let the appellate court ruling stand. So there's about a footnote, a good paragraph worth of explanation in your footnote on Nix. But the short version is it's good case law in Oregon and it's case law that's been applied elsewhere. Um, a case that stands out on this really well is also People versus Harris in Colorado. Uh, it's the same set of issues, multiple, animal, multiple animals, are they victims or not for the purposes of sentencing math? The difference is the Oregon courts really take a very academic, theoretical, scholarly view of this and walk you through the philosophy of how if animals are sentient, which they are, and if the point of animal cruelty is to protect these sentient creatures from suffering, which it is, then animals must be the victims of cruelty. In contrast, the Colorado case takes a very plain-spoken, common-sense view and basically says, well, let's look at who is harmed by animal cruelty. Well, the, the creatures who are harmed are animals. So animals are the victims of animal cruelty. So you've got two options to choose from. You've got a very theoretical model, a very common sense model. They both end up in the same place, which is we know, at least for this purpose, that animals are crime victims. And the reason they are crime victims is because they are sentient. And again, we can contrast this with the way objects are treated in the criminal justice system, the way things are treated. No one suggests that a car is a victim. If someone gets in a car crash, the human behind the wheel might be a victim or might be the perpetrator, depending on who caused the crash. A passenger might be a victim, but no one says, oh, that poor classic car was a victim. Even if you really love cars, even if it hurts you inside to feel that that car was injured, the car doesn't feel injured. 
because the car isn't sentient. The car is a thing. Similarly, when someone breaks into a house, no one says, well, the house was a victim. Look, the door got broken into. The victims are the people who the house belongs to. And so it's really significant that we have case law increasingly saying animals are victims. Their owners might be victims too. If you have a beloved cat, dog, ferret, goldfish, what have you, and someone injures that animal, you can be a victim as well because that animal belonged to you and that animal was harmed. But the animal is a core victim. And no matter what, if the animal is harmed by animal cruelty, what this case law is saying is the animal needs to be considered a victim of that crime. That's really cool um, about Harris. And can you just, it just like exited my mind as soon as you said it, but did you say the court in that case in Colorado referenced the Oregon decision or, or it just happened to be like similar, but they didn't, they didn't talk about the Oregon case? Say so They were similar cases. I don't believe that the two of them talk about each other, uh, but we're seeing both of those cases cited elsewhere, and it's popping up in a lot of jurisdictions. It's actually come up at the federal level um, in a case coming out of dogfighting, um, where in a giant multi-state dogfighting investigation, uh, the one of the defendants was convicted of fighting multiple dogs, uh, and the question was, in federal courts, much like Oregon and Colorado, if you have two victims, that counts for more sentencing-wise. You don't get to fight one dog and get the rest free. And so uh, at the trial level, the federal Department of Justice argued as the courts, as the state in Colorado and Oregon did, that the two dogs were victims. The appellate court bypassed that issue in an interesting way. The Circuit Court of Appeals uh, said that the sentence that treated the dogs as separate victims was a good sentence because the dog fighting had different impacts at different points in time, and therefore the court did not have to consider whether the dogs were victims. Uh, my question would be, who were those impacts at different points in time on? Because it certainly looks like those were impacts on the two dogs. So, I think the circuit court was really saying the dogs were victims. I think they just weren't quite ready to get there yet. And it's certainly something that courts in the federal level are going to have to address explicitly because it keeps coming up. And I think that as we see more people recognizing that animal cruelty is really about the animals and more of these cases being treated seriously and brought to trial or brought to, brought to plea deals, we're going to see this become an increasingly pointed question. Yeah, that brings me to something I probably should have memorized, but in terms of the timeline, like Nixon has, was that like 2015, 2013, so, uh, 2016, Nix was 2010, 2014. I, 2014. I, I want to say Hess was 2015. Yeah. And the same day Nix was announced, the same day the Oregon Supreme Court issued their opinion in Nix, they issued an opinion in the second of our trilogy cases, State versus Fessenden. And State versus Fessenden revolves around a horse named Gracie. And Gracie is, this is going to sound familiar, from our hypo of Daisy. Don't, don't worry, we haven't forgotten Daisy. We're going to bring it back to her in a moment. But Gracie is living out in a pasture. Gracie is an emaciated horse. Uh, the neighbors have been really worried about Gracie. They've seen her getting skinnier and skinnier. 
And they're worried enough eventually that they call the local sheriff. And they ask the local sheriff's department to send someone out to take a look at this horse. And the sheriff drives out to the neighbor's driveway, the driveway of the people who called in the complaint. They give him permission to be in their driveway. And he's looking across the fence at Gracie. And fortunately, this sheriff's deputy happens to be somewhat of an expert in horses. He's been trained in horse health and welfare. He's got a background in something called body condition scoring, which is a metric that veterinarians use to assess the weight and how healthy the body condition of different animals are. And on this body condition score, A1 is really emaciated, really skinny. A5 is obese. Usually you want your animals to be around the two and a half, three range. And this officer is looking at Gracie and he says, this is the skinniest, most emaciated horse I've ever seen in my life. She's maybe a one on the scale and she's swaying on her feet. And the officer is worried that if she goes down, she's not going to get back up. When horses go down and they fall under that sort of health condition, it could be really hard to get them back on their feet, get them restored to health. And as far as he's concerned, she needs to be seen by a veterinarian immediately. The problem is this deputy doesn't have a search warrant because he just came out on the call. Uh, He just came to see how Gracie was doing. He didn't put a search warrant together beforehand because he hadn't gathered any evidence beforehand. He didn't have anything to bring to a judge before he showed up to get the warrant. But he thinks in the time it takes him to get a warrant, Uh, In the time it takes him to go find a judge and get the judge to sign off on the warrant, his concern is that Gracie is going to die. And so he calls a vet. He has the vet load Gracie into a horse transport trailer, take her off to the veterinary hospital to get treatment. And he says, "I'll, I'll deal with the repercussions of that afterwards. I think it's an emergency. And just like how if he came upon a human in a health emergency, he could get that human help without a warrant. He says, that's what I'm going to do for Gracie. Well, as you can imagine, this comes up at trial. The defense says, you didn't have a warrant when you went into our client's property and seized their horse, their horse who is also their property. And so you seized their property without a warrant. We want the entire seizure thrown out. And that would throw out the seizure of Gracie. It would throw out all the medical records that reveal that she was in fact starving, that the only thing, the reason she was emaciated was because she hadn't been fed. And that would effectively kill the case. Without a record of her being starved, without a veterinarian's report that says, this is how we know that the reason she was emaciated was because she wasn't being fed, the prosecution wouldn't be able to mount a successful case. And so the prosecution's response is, much like the sheriff's deputy, to argue that Gracie should be treated more like a human. And there are two ways in Oregon that law enforcement officials can enter property and intervene without warrants. Or at least there's two applicable ways for this case. There's a whole bunch of exceptions to warrants. Somewhere I can sense law students, prosecutors, and members of the defense bar being like, no, no, there's more than two. And they're right. There are tons more than two. But there are two that are relevant to this conversation. And the first is the emergency aid exception. And the emergency aid exception is straightforward. 
if an officer reasonably believes that someone is suffering in a medical emergency, a health emergency, and needs imminent, immediate care, they can enter property and get that person the care they need. So this could be a law enforcement officer walking down the street who happens to glance sideways, look through a window, and see someone lying on the floor in a pool of blood. That officer is not obligated to go get a search warrant before they go into the house, figure out why this person is bleeding out, and try to get them help. The other exception is the exigent circumstances exception, and that is similar to emergency aid, except it involves either getting someone help for an emergency or preventing the destruction of evidence or apprehending a suspect, and it requires that there be a crime involved. Officers need to reasonably believe that a crime took place. So the difference is, in the example I just gave, where an officer looks through a window, sees someone lying in a pool of blood, that officer doesn't know a crime took place. The person might have been standing on a step stool trying to get something in their kitchen out of a tall cabinet, slipped and fallen down and hit their head. That's why that's an emergency aid exemption. The officer doesn't need to believe there was a crime. They just need to believe that the person needs help. Whereas for exigent circumstances, they have to believe there's a crime. And so the state in Fessenden argues both exigent circumstances and emergency aid. The state says, we think first you should apply the emergency aid exception. And you should say that Gracie the horse is deserving of emergency aid in the same way a human is. Maybe she's not as deserving of emergency aid as a human, but we don't need to know if it's equal. We just need to know she is deserving of emergency aid. And I'll talk more about that difference in a moment. The state also says, your honors, if you don't buy this emergency aid argument, then we'd also like you to consider exigent circumstances. We'd like you to consider that the officer had a reasonable suspicion that a crime was being committed, the crime being animal neglect, because Gracie was emaciated and starving to the point of being a body condition one. And we'd like you to say that given that the officer believed there was a crime in progress, that allowed the officer to enter the property under the exigent circumstances exception to provide aid to Gracie and collect her as evidence of a crime against herself. So let me break these down a little bit more. Um, first, let's talk about the emergency aid exception, because as this case was getting argued, there was a lot of coverage in the media saying, is this going to elevate horses to be the same as humans? Will Gracie have the right to vote or drive? Will she have all the rights that come with being a human in Oregon? No one was arguing this. That was not the argument that was being made. And in part because that argument never came up. This wasn't a case where the officer had to choose between helping Gracie and helping a starving human. It wasn't a case where the officer was looking across that fence and said, well, there's Gracie who's about to die, and there's a human that's about to die. Who do I help first? It was simply a case where the officer said, Gracie is about to die, and the state was arguing that's enough for the officer to go in and get her help. 
it would be an entirely different situation if Gasser had to decide between a horse and a human. In that case, the state, I think, would still argue that there was an emergency aid exception for both. But the state would probably argue that it is reasonable for the officer to prioritize the human before the horse. That is a whole separate area of law and philosophy. So contrary to some news reports you may have seen, dear loyal listeners, no one was arguing that Gracie the horse was about to get her driver's license to go cruising down the road in her horsey big rig. At the appellate level, an interesting thing happens. The appellate court says, we really dig this emergency aid argument, and we are going with that. We are going with the argument that officers can enter property when they think that persons need emergency aid, and they can give those persons the help they need. And guess what? Gracie is one of those persons. And they phrase it just like that. That's really cool. I feel like I missed that detail. <laughs> I couldn't remember. I, we, we don't hear a lot about animals being discussed as persons. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I can't believe. Like, I couldn't remember, actually, if it was if they came down with emergency aid and exigency or ju- just exigency was all I remembered, I thought. So I'm happy to hear you uh, detail that. That's so cool. So the appellate court. The appellate court goes hard for emergency aid. The appellate court really digs that argument, and they get there in an interesting way. They don't argue that Gracie is a human, because she's not. She's got four legs and hooves and those delightful horse ears and the soft horse nose. They don't argue that she's a person by statute, because there is no statute governing this. This is all case law. Instead, the appellate court says, well, when we're trying to figure out who gets emergency aid, we have to look at why emergency aid exists. And the case law and the appellate court says the reason emergency aid exists as an exception to the search warrant requirement is because we as a society believe it is reasonable for law enforcement officers to be able to intervene to prevent suffering and death. We've decided that is a reasonable entry into property, and therefore you don't need a warrant. A reasonably warrantless search for those of you checking off your con law bingo. And so the court says, well, by that reasoning, if the point is to prevent suffering and death, we know that animals can suffer and animals can die. We know that because, again, they are not things. They are not objects. They are sentient creatures. So if Gracie is sentient and Gracie can suffer and die, then yes, the officer can enter this property and get Gracie the help she needs because she falls in the same category, the same type of creature that this rule is designed to protect. And so the court doesn't say Gracie is a human. The court doesn't say Gracie counts as a person for any other purpose. The court simply says When we apply emergency aid, we will apply it to animals and to humans. Animals subject to unlawful cruelty and to humans. And that's coming out of the appellate court. That's a bold and exciting argument. And one that I think makes a lot of sense. The Supreme Court, they're not quite so sure. The Supreme Court starts, and to their credit, this is the the classically judicious way to, to do things. Again, We're a field that gets very nervous about sudden changes. We're a field that is trained to make as little change as possible to create a just system without going too far. And so the Supreme Court says, 
Well, before we get to emergency aid, let's look at exigent circumstances. Because if we can resolve this under exigent circumstances, then we probably don't need to talk about emergency aid. And the Supreme Court, in looking at exigent circumstances, says, yeah, we think that applies here. We know there was reasonable belief that a crime occurred, because again, the officer was staring at this starving horse. And we believe that under those circumstances, the officer had an exigency that allowed him to enter the property to prevent Gracie from, from being further victimized. And the court frames this all in terms of Gracie as a victim, again, because Gracie is a sentient creature. The difference, critically, is that if the officer had been looking across the fence, seeing an object that was being destroyed, a car that was rusting out, uh, even if that object was somehow protected by the law, the officer would still have to go find a judge and get a search for it because the object is not a victim. There's no ongoing harm to a victim that the officer could intervene in to you know, halt. Whereas in this case, the court says, leaving aside the emergency aid issue, we know Gracie is the victim. The officer had reasonable belief that he had to go onto that property to prevent her from being further victimized. And therefore, we're calling this good under exigent circumstances. And the court explicitly says, we will leave emergency aid for another day. So Oregon is an interesting place now. Go ahead. I was just going to say they just felt kind of queasy about the emergency aid. They just didn't sort of want to touch it. And they're like, eh, if we can do exigency, that's less like mm, pushing it quite as far. Yeah, I think. And again, to their credit, that's a classic model of how you're supposed to operate as a judge. I think they felt that the emergency aid was a little too bold because, again, the difference is exigent circumstances requires a crime to have taken place. And so fundamentally, when we're talking about search warrant exceptions, we're talking about what is reasonable for an agent of the government to do. What do we as a society consider reasonable? And I think the court felt more comfortable saying it's reasonable for a law enforcement officer to come onto your property without permission if they believe an animal is being subject to the crime of animal cruelty versus if they think an animal is just injured, but they don't know how it happened. So, for example, the court, the court is basically saying, as a, as a culture, as a society, we are more prepared to embrace law enforcement officers intervening on behalf of animals that are being affirmatively tortured or beaten or starved by people responsible for them versus if Gracie had tripped over something and broken her leg. In that case, maybe the officer isn't, maybe we as a culture are not as comfortable with the officer entering without a warrant. Do emergency aid and exigent circumstances, do these apply only to law enforcement or is there like a civil component or is that like a whole other, if that's a tangent, that's fine. <laughs> but I was just thinking, you know, if it had just been you or I who saw it. Right. It applies to, to any government officer. So it applied to law enforcement, it would apply to first responders. What happens with private individuals is a whole different matter. Uh, and there are some laws that cover that. And this would be a great topic for a future podcast. When we, we get beyond our exciting exploration of criminal law, we can talk about private parties entering 
uh, facilities, private parties opening cars to rescue dogs in hot weather and things like that. Yeah. And there are some laws, as you know, there are laws in some states that specifically say, here's what you have to do, private citizen, to go into that hot car and get that animal out. And it usually says, like, you have to use the least amount of force. You have to call law enforcement ahead of time. You have to stay with the animal until law enforcement shows up. It's not just open season on rescuing any animal you want. Uh, there is a process laid out, and some states have that, some states don't. But search warrant stuff is all about when can the government go into your stuff, go into your property, violate your privacy or the sanctity of your land, your house, when do they have to have a warrant? When do they not need to have a warrant? And in this case, in State versus Fessenden, the Oregon court ends up saying, if there is an animal crime victim, an animal who's being victimized by cruelty, the officer can intervene to stop that cruelty without a warrant. Although the court does give that the caveat of saying, if the officer can get a warrant without exposing the animal to severe injury, the officer should go ahead and get a warrant. And as technology develops, it's becoming increasingly easier for officers to get warrants. We see this in both human and animal cases. So if you if you are a law enforcement officer and you've got a you know, computer in your squad car that's online and hooked into your county warrant system and you can type out your warrant right then and there and have it in five to 10 minutes, go ahead and do that thing. Uh, if you are like the deputy in this case, where it was going to take multiple hours and Gracie would have died, then at least in Oregon, you have the ability to enter that property and halt the crime that's being committed against that animal by getting the animal the help they need. And this is an exciting outcome for Gracie the horse. Yes. I just have another, this is like a trivial question probably, but the appellate court in going with the emergency aid ex exception, did they just not touch the exigency issue because they were like this, we're going with emergency or did they, do they talk about both or is it typically like, we'll just pick one of the options and kind of like, I would I mean? have to go back and look at the, yeah. look at the appellate arguments to see how the state was framing that. Um, it's just interesting. They went with that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think in some ways it's, it's a logically cleaner answer. Like it's, it's a more, I think, intuitively pleasing answer in some ways because it's saying, it's saying that it is okay to enter that property, not because of a way the law works, works technically, but because morally and ethically as a society, we've decided that it's not okay to just watch someone suffer and die. And that's true whether the someone is a animal or a human. And I think that's the appellate court's reasoning to give you to like condense 20 pages of opinion into a sentence. Um, at the same time, that's a pretty bold claim. Yeah, I think I guess I'm more familiar with the maybe the Supreme Court decision. And I didn't. That's why I was like only thinking of the exigency and I must not have read or maybe I didn't I didn't read that part. But, but that's really interesting that they that they went there. And the outcome was still good regardless, so at the Supreme Court level. Yeah, and that, it's, worth, it's worth talking about what happens with all the animals in these cases, because ultimately it's about them. And as you know, often in criminal law, when we're talking about animals, or for that matter, when we're talking about crime in general, we talk about the defendant, we talk about the government, but we often forget to talk about the victim, at least outside of the case facts. And that's really tragic because... 
the victim should be the focal point of these conversations. Criminal law is about holding offenders accountable, but it's about holding them accountable because they victimized someone. And it's about trying to figure out how to have that accountability process work in a way that also situates the victim well. And so I, I think it's worth noting that in this case, Gracie the horse ends up living for quite a number of years afterwards uh, in a rescue. And there's some really great photos before and after photos of her where she's in just awful shape when she's picked up initially by that veterinarian, by the deputy. And then you see her at the rescue and she's got this glorious shiny coat. She's looking very healthily plump. Uh, similarly, the goats and horses in Nick's uh, went on to, to be uh, given medical care and I believe were adopted out. I know the cats in Hess were adopted out. They were, they were through Oregon Humane Society and so they all ended up going into good homes. There's one more animal that I wanted us to talk to before we bring this all back together with Daisy the cow. And that is Juno, Juno the dog. And Juno is the subject of a case that comes some years after uh, Nick's invested in, but it's also an Oregon Supreme Court case. And Juno is a, a young puppy. Uh, Juno is another case where the neighbors are worried, where the neighbors call into, in this case, Oregon Humane Society, who has deputized animal crime investigation officers. Uh, and the neighbors call in because they think Juno is being abused. They think Juno is way too skinny. They think Juno's being starved and they're, they're afraid there might be some other abuse going on. An officer comes out to the home where Juno lives with his, his owner, um, a woman named Newcomb. And the officer uh, is talking to Newcomb. And as he's talking to her, he sees Juno in the backyard trying to eat rocks, gravel, various non-food objects. And Juno is incredibly skinny incredibly emaciated. And the officer, based on the officer's training, thinks, well, I, I believe that what's happening here is this dog is starving and is trying to eat rocks. He's trying to eat other things that aren't food because Juno just needs something in his stomach. He's just trying to eat anything. Um, and Newcomb, uh, Juno's owner, says, well, I don't have any dog food in the house right now, uh, but I might be getting some. The officer says, you know, I, I understand that. That's fine. But this dog has clearly been starving for a while. I believe that I have reasonable cause to seize Juno on suspicion of animal neglect. So I'm going to seize Juno and take him to Oregon Humane Society to receive medical treatment. And then we'll have a court case to figure out what happens next. And that's exactly the way things go down. Juno goes to OHS's uh, veterinary facility and the veterinarians do a standard intake procedure for any dog that comes in in this condition. They weigh Juno, they take fecal samples, they take urine samples, and one of the things they do is a blood draw, because this is part of the standard physical workup for an animal. One of the things they want to figure out, as they do for any animal that comes in looking emaciated, is do we know why this animal is emaciated? Is Juno so skinny because Juno hasn't been fed? Is it because Juno has parasites? Is it because Juno has some other disease? Is Juno experiencing some sort of gastrointestinal issue that prevents him from absorbing nutrients even if he is eating enough food? 
And so they need to run all of these standard tests. These tests ultimately reveal that the only thing wrong with Judo is that no one has been feeding Judo for quite some time. And so at trial, the prosecution introduces these tests, including the blood test. And um, as luck would have it, the prosecutor, the trial prosecutor in this case, uh, was the prosecutor who supervised me way back when I was a law student clerking with the Moldova County DA's office. And so I can hear him in my head making the trial arguments. Um, and he introduces the blood test and the defense says, well, well, wait a second, your honor, the state never had a warrant to get blood out of the dog. And your honor, as you know, in Oregon, we take privacy very seriously. If the government wants to look inside a container, the government needs a warrant. Even if the government seizes your backpack or your purse lawfully, they need a warrant to open it up and see what's inside. There was no warrant for this dog. This dog, Juno, is a container. And without a warrant, that blood draw needs to be thrown out. At which point the trial prosecutor said uh, something along the lines of, Your Honor, it's the state's position that what is inside a dog is just more dog. Uh, making the argument, in essence, that Juno is not a container. Juno is Juno. Juno is a living, feeling, sentient creature. And... All the blood test was doing is giving you more information about Juno. You're not opening up Juno to pull objects out because Juno is not a backpack or a purse. Uh, and this ends up going all the way up to the Oregon Supreme Court. And again, it revolves around are animals objects? Are they things or are they creatures? Are they beings? Because again, the fundamental issue is how reasonable is it for an agent of the government to do a blood draw on a dog without a warrant. And in looking at that, the court not only discusses human privacy interests, which is a, a constitutional right that humans have under the Oregon and federal constitutions, but the state also discusses how Juno has a legally cognizable interest in not being subject to neglect. How the people who have custody of Juno, whether that is his original owner, Miss Newcomb, or Oregon Humane Society after they seize him, Juno has an interest in those people providing him with the legal minimum care. And the court says this is important because without that, Juno is going to suffer and die. You can't have an animal and not provide them with the minimum required food, shelter, water, medical care, and so forth. And so when the Oregon Humane Society had custody of Juno, they had an obligation to do a blood test. They had an obligation to do this physical exam because they had to give him minimum care. And as long as they were acting pursuant to that, as long as the blood test was for medical purposes, and not specifically for the purposes of prosecuting the case, then the blood test is legit. And that's, that's a pretty big deal. Because again, that is saying an animal has legal interests. And that's not something that objects really have under the law. It's something that humans have. It's something that legal persons have. And it's something that animals have. At least, again, 
in Oregon, at least for these purposes. And while the court isn't saying that they have to resolve a conflict between Juno's interest in being in not being subject to neglect and human interests in privacy, because the court is saying those don't directly conflict with each other, the court is still talking about a constitutional privacy right and an animal's interest in their own health and well-being, an animal's interest in not suffering within the same context. And that's a pretty big big deal. It's elevating animal interests to a point where they are legally significant and legally cognizable. We can have a separate debate about whether those are rights or not rights, what that means, what label we put on them, how significant it is. But suffice it to say, it is significant that a court is finding that there is a legal interest and an actionable legal interest in Juno the dog getting the care he needs. And so the court ultimately holds that because that blood draw was done as part of a normal medical checkup, it was done for medical reasons, rather than as part of the prosecution, the blood draw stands, the evidence stands, and ultimately Newcomb's conviction for neglecting Juno stands. And as a result of that conviction, Newcomb ended up forfeiting Juno, uh, and Juno went on to be adopted out, and uh, I'm, I'm told he's living his best Juno life at this point. Um, I've seen some very happy pictures of Juno with uh, what appeared to be a very large Kong toy full of peanut butter. So I think we can say that Juno is uh, indeed having his minimum needs met as we speak. Um, so that's that's the the holding of the trilogy of cases. Uh, and those those, again, are cases united by a through line of animals being sentient. None of these cases would come out the same way if the court looked at animals as objects or things. These are all cases where the court is saying, you know what, we don't need to figure out if animals are persons or not persons. We don't need to figure out whether animals and humans are at the same level or different levels. All we need to do is acknowledge that animals are not things that animals are not objects. And once we recognize that as a legal reality, that resolves a lot of these questions for us. And in fact, that goes on to have further impacts. Uh, a case that uh, happened right before courts went into lockdown here in Oregon, right before the pandemic shut down in-person in -person cases uh, at the start of the pandemic uh, was State versus Davidson, which involves a group of horses who were uh, allegedly being treated with neglect. Uh, and this was a pre-conviction forfeiture case. The, the way this works in Oregon is when the state seizes animals pursuant to animal cruelty charges, uh, the state essentially says, uh, if the state can show that the animals were more likely than not being subject to criminal cruelty, then the deal is that if you want to keep your animals, if you want to still be the owner of those animals, you need to put up a bond to pay for their reasonable care. Um, the theory being that if the animals were living with you, defendant, you would be needing to pay for their legally minimum care anyway. Because again, much like with Juno, these horses are legally deserving of a certain minimum amount of food, shelter, water, and so forth. In this case, they were getting that food, shelter, and water from a rescue because they had been seized 
um, as a result of being found in various bad conditions. Um, and the defendants in this case were not terribly interested in having this matter resolved in a timely fashion. Um, I was sitting in the galley watching this trial, this uh, proceeding take place. It was, I think, the third or fourth, fourth time the court had convened to hear this pretrial, um, to do this pretrial hearing. And the defendants had set this case over many times, and they wanted to do so again. And the state said, Your Honor, we would really like to get this resolved soon. We can't, the horses can't be adopted out into permanent homes until this is resolved, until we know whether they are or are not the property of the defendants. Also, if the defendants want to maintain ownership of the animals, it would be great if the defendants were actually reimbursing the rescue for some of that legally minimum care the horses deserve. And so the judge considered this for a while and then said, uh, we're going to move forward. We're going to resolve this case, this hearing today, here and now, because we've done a number of holdovers. We're not going to do another holdover because this Oregon Supreme Court has ruled that in certain circumstances, animals are the victims of animal cruelty. Animals are crime victims for animal cruelty purposes. Remember, that's the hearing coming out, the holding coming out of Nixon precedent. And the judge then says, and here in Oregon, crime victims have the right to have their cases resolved in a timely fashion. And this case has been held over far too long. So I think these horses have an interest in getting this resolved quickly so that they can get their medical care, their food, their water, their shelter paid for. And so if they're going to go to adoptive homes, they can go off to those homes. And that was a really great outcome. Uh, the results of that hearing ultimately were that the judge ruled that the horses had been subject, more likely than not, to criminal cruelty. The defendants said they did not want to pay for the horse's care. And so the horses were able to get adopted out after their rehabilitation finished, uh, which is a great outcome for those horses and bodes really well for other animals in the future. And the way we get results like that, the way we get holdings like that again, is because of this case law recognition that animals are not things. Animals are not objects. No one does hearings like that for objects or things, because for objects and things, you can just shove them in an evidence locker and come back and have the case a month later, two months later, a year later. It doesn't matter. It matters for animals because they are sentient and because they are victims. And so it's really exciting to see the way this case law is developing. Should we bring it all back home with Daisy the cow now or <laughs> we want to get yeah. into some elaboration? Definitely. I just want to say it's really cool to see how to see the case law building off those cases. And also just thinking about, um, you know, in in the Newcomb case, just that the defense even, you know, made, made that argument and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, you know, that analogizing Juno to a backpack or a container. And it just shows, I mean, the outcome was great, but I think it does show that tension that sort of, um, exists in the law still the lack of clarity and how much how much um, work can still be done to clarify animals legal status you know as as clearly distinguishing them from objects because these these arguments still come up like a lot and 
it's slowly changing for sure, but it's just, you know, for, for people who aren't as embroiled in the legal technicalities and might think, oh, of course, it's obvious an animal's not an object. And I think as you've shown with your <laughs> description of these cases, it's definitely not um, necessarily uh, obvious in terms of the way cases unfold still. Absolutely. And I, I, will, I will have people occasionally ask me, like, aren't you upset? At the defense judge, the defense attorneys making these arguments. Like, doesn't it make you upset when someone says Juno is like a backpack? And the answer is it, it doesn't. I, I know some of the attorneys who were at various points of the litigation doing defense work on this case. And that was a legally reasonable argument for them to make. It's not an argument I agree with, clearly. The argument I agree with is the one that carried the day that no, Juno is not like a backpack. All that's inside the dog is more dog. But I am glad those arguments get made because if they don't, we don't get answers to these questions. Our entire legal system operates on the assumption that people are not going to run away from hard questions, that we are going to charge at them and get them answered, that we are going to embrace the difficulty, embrace the challenge. And I think that's part of what makes the criminal law that we're talking about in, these pod, in our, this season of our podcast really relevant for animals because criminal cases really sharpen the question of where animals fit under the law. And it does it in a variety of ways. Part of it is the victimhood questions we've talked about today, the sentience questions. Uh, part of it is also criminal law is a space where that zealous obligation that fitsturdies have to their clients encourages them to raise and make these arguments. And again, if, if defense attorneys weren't raising them, we wouldn't be getting the answers. So in many ways, this is the system working exactly the way it should. And I am grateful to the defense attorneys who were arguing that Juno was like a backpack, because if they hadn't, we wouldn't have the ruling that said, Juno is a sentient creature and has a legally cognizable interest in receiving appropriate medical care from the people who have control over him. Uh, it's also, I think, really critical that we talk about this in the criminal space because one of the core dif distinctions in criminal law is between property crimes and person crimes, or as I might phrase it, property crimes and creature crimes. Animal crimes are not property crimes, and we know that. Because as these cases demonstrate, they are crimes where the negative impact of the crime, the thing that makes the criminal act wrongful, causes injury and suffering to a living creature. It's not to get too technical and philosophical on people, but it's the difference between what in criminal law we call um, you know, malum in se, which is a conduct that is a crime because it is inherently wrong. Murder is malum in se, because we as a society have decided it is inherently wrong to kill people. Um, starving a child is malum in se, because we as a society have decided it is inherently wrong to commit child neglect or child abuse. In contrast, we have malum prohibitum crimes, where the conduct is wrong, not because anything about it is inherently harmful or problematic, but because it's against the rules. So, for example, 
breaking the speed limit. Is malum prohibitum? Going above the speed limit doesn't inherently hurt anyone. It's against the rules because we as a society have decided that it's risky and eventually you might hurt someone, but it itself doesn't involve a harm. Now, whereas hitting someone with your automobile involves a harm. And so when we look at animal crimes, part of what this discussion really does and part of what this case law really does is highlight that animal cruelty is malum in se. Animal cruelty is a type of conduct that is wrong in and of itself because it harms someone, because it causes someone to suffer or die in an unacceptable way. We can have a debate about whether the bounds of acceptability there need to be broadened, whether we need to expand animal cruelty law, but at its core, animal cruelty law is already saying that treating animals cruelly is inherently wrong, inherently unacceptable, and it's not a crime because it's against the rules, it's a crime because what it does to the animal. And that's a really big deal in the law. That is a really good point. And you reminded me of our last episode. And I was thinking about the old laws about, I think they're mostly old, but dancing on Sunday. And I think that would be malum prohibitum. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I, I think it would be hard to say that uh, anyone in particular is harmed by dancing on Sunday. There is There is an interesting argument about if you go back far enough to points where people are passing laws and also believe in where, where the legal system accounts for supernatural things. There is an argument that there are some laws that people passed because they were worried that, like dancing on Sunday might result in a curse. And maybe that's valid per se, because then you're cursing someone. But at this point in the law, we don't really worry about curses or invoking divine wrath. We're mostly concerned about actual harms to living creatures and specifically sentient creatures. Another example of how the law evolves. Truth. <laughs> Another thing I was thinking of is, at least in the trilogy, I believe, in each of those cases, it was neighbors calling in, right, observing that these animals were in distress. And I think it's just um, important to remember, I guess, how important it is for, for everyone to speak out when you see an animal in distress. Because if those neighbors had not made those calls, like, some of these animals that were on the verge of, of death, basically. And so it's just a hugely important uh, role that bystanders play in terms of bringing these crimes to, to attention and to help the animals. So it's just something I was thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think intuitively, a lot of us know that. I think part of why people intuitively get upset about animal cruelty is because they want the, the suffering to stop. But that's also why it's important to report because the animal the animal victim is not going to be able to report themselves. Animal victims, like some human victims, are not in a position where they can pick up a phone and call the local animal control agency or sheriff's department or police station and say, excuse me, I am being neglected or abused. I would like some help. And yet the difference between an animal crime and a property crime is... Once the property crime has happened, it doesn't keep getting worse. If someone has broken a window, that window doesn't get more broken. If you wait a day or two days to report it, there may be other reasons to report it earlier, but the window doesn't suffer. Whereas with an animal crime, the longer someone waits, the more that animal suffers. 
And so you're exactly right. That's precisely why it's important that people know how to report animal cruelty cases and be willing to do so because failing that, the animals don't get the help they need. Yeah. And that's such a good point about property crime not getting worse. And, you know, also, of course, we're not saying that animals are voiceless, which for a long time in the movement, it, it was sort of a thing that people said. I think people are starting to change their language around that a bit. We know that animals do have voices. They do express their distress. Unfortunately, um, often they're not listened to, but they can't, as you pointed out, pick up the phone and call uh, the police and they can't uh, they can't use their voice in ways that I guess we're, we're listening to. They can't speak in our language in court and they can't use the phone and et cetera. Obvious points, but just, you know, we like to be careful to not say, just to say, not say that animals are voiceless because, you know, they do, but we need to do a better job of listening and observing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's part of Juno's case. Part of the takeaway from that case for me is that Juno wasn't voiceless. One of the first things that officer saw was Juno communicating how hungry he was. Juno was eating rocks in the backyard. That's Juno signaling that he was starving. That's not a voiceless animal. It's just an animal that doesn't speak a human language. And it's incumbent on us to understand what Juno means or to find someone who can tell us to educate ourselves about what Juno needs. And I think that's true for a lot of animals. Sentient animals, the, the point of being sentient is that you can experience pain and joy. And animals have different ways of dis displaying that and describing that. That doesn't mean they're not describing it. Sometimes it just means we aren't listening right. Exactly. So do you want to talk about sentience developments around the world or the, the criminal impacts? I do. Let me... So here's how we'll do it. Let me talk about Daisy. Oh, yes, yes. And I'll talk about Daisy through the criminal okay. impacts. Because I think Daisy is actually a great example of an animal who it might be hard for us to listen to. Because cows don't communicate to pain or distress in a way that a lot of us are used to. Part of it is a lot of us don't grow up with cows. Um, and part of it is that cows are, in the grand ecological scale of things, prey animals. And prey animals from an evolutionary perspective, are usually not too interested in signaling that they're in distress because that's, if you're out you know, on the savanna being filmed by Wild Kingdom, David Attenborough's narrating, if you signal that you're in distress, that's a really good way to tell the lions that like you are the weak member of the herd to pick off. So cows, for example, usually don't signal distress in ways that would be obvious to humans. And so Daisy is in sadly similar initial circumstances her, her ribs and her vertebrae are, are visible through her coat. Um, clearly, she's not getting the food she needs. Uh, it's hard to see her hooves because there's so much mud and cow waste on the ground. But you know, as she's sort of shuffling her feet, if you were there, you could see that her hooves are overgrown. She's got some water in a trough, but it's frozen over. It's the middle of winter. The water is frozen solid. And the neighbors are worried. They've called a deputy out. Um, and this deputy, Deputy Olive, uh, is watching Daisy from the neighbor's uh, front porch. You can see Daisy from what we would call in, in constitutional law land a lawful vantage point. And fortunately, Deputy Olive has grown up with cows. Deputy Olive is, you know, she's a country girl. She knows cows. 
She's spent time with cows. She's hung out at some farm rescues. She she knows about cows. And so she's pretty worried about the way Daisy is acting. Daisy is far too skinny. And while Daisy isn't making you know audible sounds of distress, while Daisy doesn't seem to be giving a lot of physical movement signals, from what she knows of cows, her more than average knowledge, she's worried. Um, and particularly, she thinks you know, Daisy's body condition score is probably around one, uh, maybe one and a half. And you know, given given how far out in rural Oregon they are, uh, the the satellite uplink in the patrol car is working. Officer Olive can't get a hold of a judge to get a warrant, so Officer Olive thinks, "Well, I've got to I've got to get Daisy to a large animal vet." I need to do this now before the only vet in the area heads out of town for a long weekend. Uh, I'm calling the vet now. We're seizing Daisy. And that's, in fact, what happens. Daisy gets seized. Daisy gets taken to the vet. And the vet does a whole battery of tests on Daisy, including a blood draw. Um, and the result of that blood draw is that, well, there's there's nothing wrong with Daisy. Um in terms of her digestion, the only thing wrong with her is no one's been feeding her, um, and she's severely dehydrated because the water that was available to her was frozen solid. She needs a hoof trim, um, and she needs some treatment for you know, parasites on her skin. But other than that, she'll be okay. Uh, and as a result of this, the the local uh, prosecutor decides to charge Daisy's owner with animal neglect. That charge. Uh, goes before a jury, as does a related animal case, because as officers are following up and interviewing Daisy's owner, uh, they're standing you know, on, the, on the, the front doorway, in the front doorway of the owner's house, and they see through that doorway, again, a lawful vantage point, they see an emaciated dog with what looks like a broken leg hobbling about. The officers think to themselves, oh no, oh, this is this is a whole other animal crime. So they seize this dog on suspicion of neglect. They take the dog to a vet, and the tests reveal the only thing wrong with this dog is the dog has not been fed, and the dog has a broken leg that was untreated. The owner is convicted of animal neglect on both counts. And so where does this come down legally? in the light of all of our cases. And if you've, been, if you've been following along, you can probably see where this connects pretty clearly. The first question is going to be, was Daisy lawfully seized or did Deputy Olive need to get a search warrant? Remember, she reasonably felt she didn't have time to get the warrant because she didn't have the technology to do so. The time window to get Daisy to a vet was closing. So... She intervened to halt ongoing animal cruelty being perpetrated against Daisy, the victim of neglect. State versus Fessenden would tell us that is legitimate. Um, so that was a, a legit seizure. Uh, the second question is whether the blood draws, the blood draw either for Daisy or this broken-legged dog, whether either of those were valid. And because those blood draws were done as part of a standard veterinary routine, standard intake, state versus Newcomb 
would tell us those blood draws were legit. The prosecutor can bring those in later at trial because they weren't conducted specifically to reveal hidden information. They were just conducted to reveal the condition of Daisy, of the dog. And the final question is going to be, does the owner of Daisy and, and this dog face one or two counts of animal neglect when they are ultimately sentenced? And the answer here is two, because there are two separate victims. There's one owner. The same person owns Daisy as the dog, but that owner is not the victim of this crime. And that makes sense. And that makes sense not only under State versus Nix and State versus Hess, or for those of you listening in Colorado, People versus Harris, but it also makes sense logically. The owner can't victimize themselves by neglecting their own animals. That would defeat the entire purpose of animal cruelty law and lead to the absurd outcome of the defendant committing animal cruelty law against themselves. No, no, no. What has actually happened is the defendant has committed animal neglect, criminal cruelty against Daisy and the dog. So two victims, two crimes, two counts. And that is the way Daisy's typo would wrap up. Uh, the defendant is convicted and sentenced on two counts of animal neglect. And because we have the latitude to make that, that sentencing outcome up, uh, I'm going to say that one of the outcomes is that the, the defendant has to forfeit um, all property interest in the dog and Daisy. Ideally, I would like to think that would have already happened through pre-conviction forfeiture, but that's a separate podcast. So I will simply say that the sentence is the defendant has to give up being the owner of Daisy and of the dog who can now get adopted out into healthy, happy dog and cow homes. Uh, Nicole, what do you have any thoughts on the sentence? Yeah, I was just going to say that in terms of forfeiting the, their property interest in those two individual animals would only extend to those individual animals typically, right? Unless there's like an additional sort of possession band um, that would apply to other animals. Is that right? Right. So if these are the only two animals who are the victims of the crimes, the if the forfeiture was that the defendant was sentenced to forfeit the crime victims, it would only apply to those two animals. You are right, though, that if there was a larger possession ban, then the defendant might be prohibited from possessing any animal for a year, six months, five years, however long the court said. So in this hypothetical, uh, this person could potentially, you know, go adopt another animal th the next day if they wanted to in the absence of a, like a possession type ban. Right. So, so that, I think that's a good argument for a possession ban, particularly if during trial it became evident that this is an ongoing issue. It is not a matter of the defendant needing to be educated about the fact that dogs and cows need food and liquid water and they need their broken legs to be treated. This is not an issue of the defendant not realizing that there are resources out there to assist with care for animals or that if the defendant cannot, does not have the resources to provide for their animals, they could surrender those animals to someone else. If this is an ongoing issue, yeah, I think it makes perfect sense that this defendant not have access to animals for a while because that's the best way to keep animals safe from this treatment in the future. I would also like to, and this, this gets directly into what do we get out of animal sentience for cruelty? I would like, I would like the victims to receive restitution in this case. So 
it's great that the defendant is going to not own Daisy and the dog anymore. It's great that the defendant is going to be prohibited from owning other animals for a certain period of time. But Daisy and the dog are going to need medical care. They may need medical care for their whole lives, depending on how badly they were starved. Long-term chronic starvation can have lifelong impacts. If nothing else, neither of them may be able to eat a normal diet again. They may need like very special, expensive, fancy animal food. Which would make it hard for them to adopt, right? Because like, they're more expensive. Right. And... It makes it harder for them to be adopted. It's already hard to find adoptive homes for cows. They're pretty big. You can't have cows in apartments, as far as I know. Um, and so much like how human victims, typically in, cruel, in criminal cases, can, one of the sentences is that the offender, the defendant, the convicted perpetrator, owes restitution to those human victims. In this case, I would like to see the defendant, one of their sentences be that they are responsible for paying restitution to Daisy and to the dog, covering at least some portion of you know, those anticipatable medical costs. Um, and that's, again, that's about sentience. That's not something you do for objects or things. No one says you owe that table restitution because you broke the table's leg. We do that for creatures that need ongoing care, creatures that are victims. And that's, that's I think, a really, a really important part of sentencing. It might even, in a different context, if we're looking at a restorative justice approach to animal cruelty, it would also be critical there. You can't have restorative justice without having victims, because without a victim, you don't have anyone to restore. The point of restorative justice is to restore the victim to a sense of wellness and fullness and wholeness in a way that contextualizes the crime, gets the offender to take responsibility, acknowledge what happened, and work in a community context, a context that involves the victim and the offender, and anyone else relevant to prevent it from happening again. So if instead of going to trial, there was a animal case that resolved through a restorative justice approach, it would be really important to do that acknowledging the sentience of the animals, because otherwise, otherwise it's not restorative justice if you're not restoring those animal victims. Yeah, I was thinking about that too when you were talking about whether a possession ban would be warranted in certain um, situations. It depends if if the person is sort of educable and like maybe it was just a, a knowledge gap about animals' needs. And in that case, maybe they they would be able to perhaps move forward and care for animals. But in cases where that's that's not the issue, then a possession ban would be more appropriate. And I was just thinking about some of those mechanisms available through restorative justice mechanisms in terms of determining that and if I recall correctly, education is sometimes one of those mechanisms. I was also thinking about restitution. So um, with an animal victim, I don't know, does this depend sort of on the circumstances of the case? Or would that typically go into a trust for the animal in terms of administering any restitution that's granted? Or, you know, could it go to a rescue? Um, or is it typically a trust for the animal? Do you? Just since I, this is a good question, since there's not a lot of cases where animals get restitution because animals being crime victims at all is pretty cutting edge. Yeah. Uh, there like are that. plenty of cases where rescues or shelters or the government themselves get reimbursed for money they've already spent on the animal, but that's different than the animal getting restitution. 
part of it is that doesn't necessarily call, cover ongoing expenses. Um, but also, as you say, restitution would attach to the animal. So probably in the form of a trust, it would follow that animal around and that would make it a lot easier for the animal to be adopted. Right now, we'll take Daisy again as an example, Daisy the cow. Uh, in a non-restitution scenario, the amount that the, the local farm rescue has spent getting Daisy back up to good health might be covered as part of sentencing, but the special food Daisy will need for the rest of her life wouldn't be, and that might make it hard to find someone to adopt her. A restitution scenario would let the rescue advertise her for adoption with a note saying this animal has special dietary needs and comes with a trust to fund those needs, to fund the difference between a normal cow diet and the special you've been starved cow diet. Yeah, and it, it might be worth mentioning that all states now have, have laws that allow trust for animals on the book, so it's not, for, for anyone who's not familiar with trust for animals, that is, that is something that is done and um, is possible. Yeah, it's, it's something that lawyers are, are super good at. Um, and I, I am not a Wilson Trust lawyer, but I do know Wilson Trust lawyers and Wilson Trust lawyers who specialize in animal cases. As you were saying, Nicole, it's not something that at this point in time is in any way unusual or radical. It is on the books in every state. It is a absolutely normal way for people typically to ensure that after the humans die, their beloved companion animals will be provided for, that there's money to make sure that they go to good homes, that they have their needs accounted for. This is just a matter of us taking that existing tool and applying it to criminal cases, saying, wow, we've got a legal mechanism to attach money to animals to provide for their ongoing needs. What if we did that for animal cruelty victims? And that made it easier for them to get adopted out it helped them get the behavioral work they'll need to address the mental and psychological impacts of being abused. So again, it could be easier to adopt them and find them better homes. So we've talked a lot about animal cruelty in the context of America. In Oregon, Colorado, similar states around the country, and even the federal system that are adopting ways of looking at animals as sentient and what that means in cruelty law and how, in fact, American cruelty law really depends on animals being sentient creatures. But I know there are things going on globally around this issue, and I'm not up to speed on the position of animal sentience in terms of international animal law, but I know you've looked into it, Nicole. I know this, this is kind of your jam, so I'm, I'm hoping you can educate me on that. Yeah, so sentience is a pretty hot topic in animal law at the moment. Um, it's been a trend internationally. Uh, for some time now, with many countries are have been moving to update their legal codes to explicitly recognize that animals are sentient beings. And a lot of this has been happening in civil codes, not always, but a, a lot of it has been civil versus criminal. And since our focus this season is criminal law, um, we're not going to go into too much depth now, but we probably will cover this um, a little bit more in a future episode. But a few recent examples of countries that are in the process of codifying animal sentience. Um, I think these are just from this year, but Spain, South Korea, Turkey, 
the UK is working on this now that they've brexited from the EU and they're updating their legal code. Um, so, and these aren't always using the word sentient necessarily. As far as I know, South Korea's doesn't have that word, but it adds a clause that says animals are not objects. So, you know, it's, it's the same idea, but using different language, but just kind of getting that clarifying language into the law. But I, I feel like it's important to also note that some countries recognized animal sentience years ago. So this is not an entirely new thing. It's just a trend that's been picking up lots of steam lately. Um, and we can debate how much practical versus symbolic impact um, or any impact that these laws have had um, in terms of actual effects on animals and what their potential is and how much effort the movement should put into passing them. Um, but that's probably a discussion for another day. But I do think it's a good and worthy discussion to have because there's, there's some good arguments for sort of animal sentience as a, as a baseline foundational principle in animal law and that there are good reasons for, for getting that language in there, whether it's being uh, used now or has been in the past, it doesn't mean that moving forward, um, having this language can uh, be picked up by courts later and it can, well, we can talk about that. There's a lot of good reasons, but it's also important to understand that these are also limited reforms. You know, sometimes people are really cynical, like, oh, this country has changed their law to say animals are sentient. And then some people go, oh, well, they're still going to keep eating them and doing this and that. And so sometimes there's also a disconnect between like, what it means to introduce sentience. But I think the discussion today, going through the cases that you did um, in such fascinating detail, it just kind of shows how these, th these are building blocks, you know, and like things, things evolve and change um, kind of slowly. And it's important to get as many sort of, I guess, tools in there that we can, that we're not sure how it's going to shake out. But I think overall, it's a positive development that this is um, picking up steam. And it's not just legislatures grappling with this issue. There have been some important animal forward court cases outside the U.S. that have hinged on sentience recently. So, for example, there was a recent high-profile decision out of the Islamabad High Court in Pakistan uh, dealing with an elephant named Kaban that relied heavily on sentience. And... Um, the court in that case ruled unequivocally that animals have natural legal rights and that these rights are located in the fact that animals are alive and sentient. And, you know, that's the court's language. And that case resulted in not only Kavan, um, who's, who was dubbed the world's loneliest elephant, Kavan was kind of a, a well-known case, shared, famously taken up his case, the, lots of local activists, um, on the ground, we're trying to get Kavan out of this horrible zoo for years and years and years. So he was kind of the centerpiece of this case, but um, it resulted in not only his being relocated to a sanctuary, but also the zoo at issue in this case being shut down completely, which meant the relocation of hundreds of other animals to sanctuaries as well. So I did a lengthy analysis of that decision and included tons of excerpts from the ruling because it was a really cool ruling and it's got some pretty inspirational language and it's just really nice to read it. So if anyone's interested in uh, checking that out, uh, we can put those in the show notes. I think I have a couple pieces about that case because the the court kept issuing follow-up orders as well, giving updates on the animals, and it's just a really cool case. But again, it hinged on um, on the fact that animals are sentient. In part, there, there was a lot of reasoning the court used, but sentience was certainly a factor. And that's just one recent example. There was another recent case from the Delhi High Court in India 
that ruled community or street dogs have the right to food and that residents have a right to feed them. And the court in that case based its decision in part on the fact that quote, animals are sentient creatures with an intrinsic value. And because of this, quote, animals have a right under the law to be treated with compassion, respect, and dignity. And I thought that was another cool case that I wrote up um, something about that. I don't think it's on line yet. But anyway, that, that was another cool case. Those are, those are just a couple of recent examples of courts outside the U.S. applying the principle of sentience to reach just outcomes for animals. That's really exciting. I had not heard about the the street dog case in particular. I had heard about the elephant. I remember you and I talking about that, but wow, that is... I couldn't remember if I told you about it or not. I forget how exciting the elephant case is, and yeah. I hadn't heard about street dogs. Yeah, yet. okay. I was going to share that with you because I know you and I have talked about that street dogs are an interesting... Yeah. yeah so I'll definitely share that um, with you once it's online because I thought that you might think it was... Please do. It was, it's a cool decision. It's an interesting case too, I think. Yeah. Our, our listeners may not realize that <laughs> I find the, the, the subject of at-large dogs and cats fascinating because they aren't wild animals, but they're not owned domestic animals. And so they fall in this really fascinating legal gray area. And I am always excited to hear more about what's going on with them legally and try to find ways to uh, help them have better lives and help prevent burgeoning overpopulation, which results in awful things occurring to them. So excited to hear about what's going on in India. That'll be really great. Yeah, David, I think you'll want to read this decision because the court like really goes into the positive role that street dogs play in the community and like it's real there's really cool language in it. Yeah, and it also includes vaccination and sterilization mandates as well speaking to the overpopulation because they ruled that one of the objections, you know, a lot of I guess residents are against the, the other residents who feed the dogs because there's a big fear of rabies. Rabies is a much bigger deal in India than it is in the U.S. And so one of the common criticisms of the opponents of feeding these dogs is they say, oh, they feed these dogs, but then nobody has responsibility for like sort of their other needs, their medical needs and things like that. And so the court actually put, there's these like resident associations that are common in India, kind of like neighborhood associations. And the court ruled that they are responsible if nobody else steps in who's feeding the dogs, they're responsible to make sure they have food. But not only that, but if the dogs are injured or unwell, they have to take care of them and they also have to make sure they're uh, vaccinated against rabies and uh, sterilized to prevent the community from becoming overpopulated. So there's just a lot of this interesting so stuff interesting. in this decision. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, again, I know you and I have talked about that it sounds like this decision underscores is the difference between community animals and feral animals. For example, a feral dog, a feral cat is usually going to avoid humans, hide from humans. They're not acculturated to like humans. Whereas you can have a, a street dog, a street cat, an at-large dog or cat that doesn't isn't owned by anyone, but enjoys humans, seeks out humans, begs for food from humans. And those are two very different animals with very different needs. And I, I'm so excited to get to read a legal decision that takes that into account. And that looks at, again since these are sentient creatures, how the community relates to them and might be responsible for them. Uh, this is great. I'm excited to read this. This is going to be really cool. And now we're, at, we're heading far off on tangents. This yes. is probably the time we should wrap <laughs> I want to this talk about it up. more, but more yes. topic. <laughs> and so to wrap us up, we are Nicole Plata, Senior Policy Program Manager at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. 
and David Rosengard, Managing Attorney at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. We are coming to you as Friends of Animals, recorded through the magic of the internet here in the American Pacific Northwest. On behalf of Animal Amicus, we look forward to you joining us next time. Cheers. Bye.